Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. We've been in this Abundant Life series for, for quite a while, right? We've been in it since the fall kickoff, which was, I think, maybe the first or second week of September, and um, we've talked about it quite a bit, right? From John 10.10, 10, we talked about how God's given us life abundantly. We talked about life in the vine in John 15. Um, and now we've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit for, uh, well, this will be the ninth week in the fruit of the Spirit. And this is going to be the, f- the final week of the fruit of the Spirit. There's been a common theme, um, right, throughout this, bearing fruit and about healthy growth, right? From, from point A all the way back in John 10, 10, to where we're at now, um, there's been a lot of talk about healthy growth. And anyone who knows anything about gardening knows that there is work required in order to produce a crop, right? Gardening's not something that's simple. Um, Planting any kind of farming is not something as simple as dropping a seed in the ground, coming back a few months later, and reaping a harvest. At least, not usually. That's not usually the case. There's some required steps, and one of those steps is preparing the soil for the plant that you hope to grow. Hydrangeas are a really interesting plant, right? Growing up where, where I did, usually if we had hydrangeas, they were either white or they maybe had a slight pink hue to them. But when we moved to Virginia, almost all the hydrangeas I saw had this bright, vivid blue color. It was not something that I had seen before. So I thought, this is awesome. I'm going to get some of these blue hydrangeas. I'm going to bring them home to my family in Michigan, and we'll be the only people on the block with blue hydrangeas. You know, it'll be great. So I went to the nursery, and I started looking around at all these hydrangeas. I thought this was going to be like the best Mother's Day present ever. And I'm walking around, and all I see is white. That's all I see is white hydrangeas everywhere. So I naturally go up, to one of the, the workers there, and I, I asked, do you know where I can get any of those blue hydrangeas you see around everywhere? And they looked at me like, this, you don't do this a lot, do you? <laughs> I'm like, no, no I don't, but anyways, where, are they, where, where can I find them? Well, what I found out is that hydrangeas are unique because the color is determined by the acidity of the soil. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, yeah, we already know this, Pastor Travis. You're not telling us anything new. But hydrangeas are determined by the acid that's in the soil. Um, If there's a more acidic soil, they're blue, whereas if a hydrangea is planted in a more base or more neutral soil, they tend to be more on the pink side. So by manipulating that soil, by adding or taking specifically um, the aluminum ions that are in it and changing that, you can make hydrangea just about anywhere on the spectrum from bright blue to bright pink and anywhere in between. Uh, I thought that was something interesting. You probably didn't think you were going to get a horticultural chemistry lesson this morning at church, but if you're growing hydrangeas and you want to change the color, now you know how. (laughs) 
The point that I'm getting at is, is really quite simple. Our lives produce the fruit that's made possible by the Holy Spirit, right? It's only by God's grace that we're able to produce that fruit. But we do play a role in that, right? What we put in the soil with the seed that Christ has planted will impact what that fruit looks like. The things that we put into our lives are going to change what the fruit that we bear looks like. If we're constantly filling our lives with junk, if we're surrounding ourselves with people who distract us from Christ, it's not likely that we're going to produce fruit that looks real healthy. However, if we take the time to nurture the soil, then a plentiful harvest is possible. And to some degree, that's what we're going to talk about today, how that happens. And although we're talking about the final fruit of the Spirit itself, this fruit plays a major role in our ability to continually be perfected in God's image, to bear the fruit. So as a, as a refresher of where we're at, let's look back at our passage, Galatians 5, 18 through 23. And it says this, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And we've talked about the first eight of these, the first eight of the nine, and this week we finish up with self-control. And we're going to start by looking at self-control as a word and then try to slowly zoom out from that one word to what the rest of the passage and what the rest of the Bible says about it so that we can grasp a better meaning of what self-control means. The definition of the Greek word that represents self-control is very simple. Self-control is a virtue of one who masters his desires and passions. Right? In, in this context, especially their sensual appetites. Self-control is a virtue of one who masters his desires and passions. No surprises there, right? It's probably about what you assumed self-control meant. This isn't a word that you're going to discover a lot more about by digging into all the Greek meaning and the original meaning. It means exactly what you think it means. <laughs> Self-control is when we possess the ability to keep ourselves in check, right? When we're able to have a certain strength of willpower and let our yes be yes and our no be no in accordance with God's will. I like what Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, says. He said the, that the word self-control meant to have the ability to have powerful passions, but to keep them under control. Right? To have powerful passions, but to keep them under control. And it's important to know that during this time, everybody would, have, when they heard that word, self-control, they would have thought of Aristotle's teachings of that. So this was something that they would have had in mind. It's good to think and to feel strongly about things. It's good to have real passions, but virtue lies in keeping control of them so that all our energy serves good ends, so that it doesn't lead to selfish or destructive results. 
That list of works of the flesh that we just read through at the beginning of that passage are evidence of what human nature looks like when it's out of control. All of those things, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, that whole list of things, it shows humanity at its worst, right? At its worst, that leads us to selfish overindulgence that hurts God and the people around us. But self-control is the opposite of all those behaviors, or it may be better worded as the motivation behind those in check. Right? There's a passion that leads to each of those things. What, is those, what do those look like in check? One thing that I read this week and that I had to wrestle with a bit, just to be sure that I agreed with it, was that in all of the other fruit of the Spirit, we can see how each one reflects something, right? Some specific characteristic of God. When you think about all the other eight, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, they all very clearly respect or represent some characteristic of God that as you read through Scripture becomes really evident. But self-control doesn't. We can think fairly quickly um, and think of Bibles, the Bible's teaching about love of God, and we can see that. Same with the joy. But self-control is something that we need, right? Not something that God has to exercise. And as I thought about that and I reflected on it, I kept thinking, there's plenty of, inst- plenty of instances where I see God exercising and showing self-control, but as I started to think about them, times like, you know, God not destroying Nineveh, or the Mos- Moses, you know, guiding the Israelites and, and God's patience with them, but what I started realizing is they all lined up with different fruit of the Spirit, right? God's self-control and not destroying Nineveh, probably better described as God's patience, His love, and His grace, and the same is true with Moses and the Israelites. Um, God hearing Abraham and, and not destroying Sodom and Gomorrah right away, at least hearing him out. All of those interest instances reflected some characteristic of God. Self-control, by and large, is denying ourselves. When our passions and our desires begin to lead us towards something that would not be glorifying to God, self-control, self-control is our ability to say no. That's not going to help me become more Christ-like. That's not going to be fruitful to the people around me. It's not going to glorify God. No. Right? God has, has no need of self-control because God is full of good. <laughs> he can't do wrong. He can't sin. He can't do things that are evil. He has no reason to say no. Aristotle, in some ways, was onto something in his belief that self-control was the ability to have powerful passions and desires, but to keep them in check, to keep them tamed. Right, does anybody here a, a racing fan? Anybody? All right. I got I got up. Eh? All right. Well, I'm a huge I'm a huge racing fan. I grew up in a family that loved cars. I got a couple up here. Uh, some childhood f- memories. Um, just 
my grandpa had cars. My brother and my dad are both mechanics. My brother restored um, that one. That's a before and after. Uh, but here's the point of all this. In drag racing specifically, it doesn't matter how much power you have unless it translates to the ground through traction, right? You can have all the power in the world, but if you can't get traction, if you can't tame that power, it's worthless. One of my favorite YouTubers has an El Camino that has something like 800 horsepower, and all the time they're struggling getting that car from point A to point B, because as soon as he hits the gas, he just spins the tires. And that's kind of self-control, is figuring out how to get traction. Right? It's translating the power that's within us to the ground, to, to make that bear fruit. And I think some of this is where Aristotle's view of self-control weakens and the Christian view of self-control gains steam because no man on his own is able to bear all the fruit of the Spirit and live a perfectly righteous life. There is no way that we can take the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us and translate that to life if we're not relying on God. There's no way. If you isolate the virtue of self-control, it would be pretty easy to fall into the trap of works righteousness, right? Anybody been there before where you, you get more focused on what not to do and you, like guilt starts to pile up and pile on? It would be very easy to believe that, that salvation and sanctification are within our grasp if only we can become better people. But that isn't the way that it works. Right? When we accept Christ, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is at work within us, enabling us to keep our sinful desires and impulses in check. So yes... Self-control, by definition, is an effort of our will. But as Christians, it's an effort that's inspired and empowered by the Spirit of God as His will bears fruit in our will. Right? As our will begins to reflect God's will, those things naturally fall more into check. I've been reading a book uh, with a group of guys, and we were discover- or discussing grace this week. And one of them said, the more I learn about grace the less I feel like I have to do all these things and the more I want to do all these things. And that's an important difference to understand. As we become more like Christ, as we spend time in the Word, as we see the ways that God's blessing us, as we understand that grace that Christ had for us on the cross, the things that we know we're supposed to do no longer feel like things we have to do, but feel like things that we want to to do. That's life that's inspired and empowered by the Spirit of God. That's life that, that, that works within us to transform us as we understand God's will. And as you pull back more from verse 23 and you begin to look at self-control within the context of this passage even more, it becomes apparent, right? Verse 16 through 18 says, but I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, 
and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then continuing in verse 24 through 25, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. These, these verses, they, they bookend this compare contrast between the worldly passions and the fruit of the Spirit. A reminder that when we came to faith in Christ, we put to death flesh and we took up a new identity in the Spirit of God. Right? And that we're measured by the fruit of living in the Spirit, not by the measure of the law. This whole letter was written because there were false teachers in Galatia that were teaching that in order to be saved, to be faithful to God, the people who lived there, that they needed to adhere to the law, specifically when it came to circumcision. These people, they, they, weren't, they weren't Jewish. They weren't the same nationality as Christ. They hadn't necessarily lived to serve Yahweh before they came to know who Christ was. So they didn't know all of the rules and laws, and then there was these teachers telling them, you need to know all these rules and laws. The fact that Christ died, that's, that's not enough. That's, that's what these false teachers were teaching. They were teaching that salvation was not by faith alone, but that it was by faith plus a whole list of things. And if we're not careful, it's easy for us to sometimes fall into that same trap especially when it comes to this particular aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. It's easy to confuse self-control as, as our faithful response to God's love and grace with self-control in place of God's love and grace. Do you see the distinction there? The difference between faithfully responding, lovingly responding to God's grace because we know he's extended it to us by faith accepting what he's given us versus feeling like we need to earn, that we need to achieve something, and that by having more self-control, we can somehow get there. More than likely, we've probably all been guilty of that from time to time, right? Particularly, I think, when it comes to judging others, unfortunately, right? It's, it's easy to be looking and to think maybe somebody's not as faithful as they should be, and that leads us to judge. But if we're all honest, there is very little place for that, unless it's for the purpose of a loving rebuke or to challenge one another, followed by fellowship and compassionate accountability. But that's another message for another day. We won't go too deep into that. As I was thinking about the places that you see self-control illustrated well in the Bible, it's a lot easier to pick out places where there was a clear lack of self-control. Right? Saul sacrificing to God rather than waiting for Samuel. Moses striking the rock instead of speaking to the rock when God told him to. Solomon's problem with acquiring wives and concubines. There's all sorts of lack of self-control. David and Bathsheba, right? The list could just go on and on. But one great illustration of self-control is found in Genesis 39. 
Joseph had been a faithful servant, right, to Potiphar. After, after he'd been thrown into a pit and he'd been sold into slavery, he became this faithful servant to Potiphar. And everything that Joseph did, everything that he touched was blessed. So Potiphar put him in charge of his whole household. And one time when Potiphar went away for a while on business, while he was gone, he noticed uh, his wife noticed Joseph. And she noticed that he was well-built, probably from all the work that he had done, and a handsome fella. And she took a special liking to him and tried to entice him right into her bedroom. But Joseph denied her over and over again, even to the point that she set him up to make it look like he had, and then to have him thrown in prison and even then, he didn't give in. Right? Self-control. And Joseph gave two motives. And I think these are important. First, he respected his master too much, and he wasn't willing to break his master's trust. Right? And second, and I think this is even more important, I know it's more important, he was not willing to sin against God. He loved God, and he recognized his blessing in his life. And his natural response was one of faithfulness. In this case, self-control. Coming from a Wesleyan tradition, one of the major points of theology that our denomination talked about a lot was sanctification, right? Specifically, entire sanctification. And John Wesley believed that entire sanctification was possible, even before death, uh, and I tend to agree with them, but not entire sanctification in the sense that we can be perfectly free of sin. I think because of human depravity and the fact that we live in a fallen world, it pretty much means that sin to one degree or another is something that we're always going to have to wrestle with and struggle through. Thank goodness for grace, right? To me, entire sanctification has more to do with perfection and love, as John Wesley often defined it. Perfect love of God and perfect love for others. All right, we can love God perfectly to the, degree, to the degree that we know him, and we can love the people around us perfectly to the same degree that we know God. Because when we fully understand God's will for our lives, and we fully understand his grace, when we understand that we're filled with the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit, we can love people with the inspiration of God. Right? It becomes more about our motivation and our passion to love God, even, even despite the fact that once in a while, sin is going to creep in. Once in a while, you're going to sin, even if it's unintentionally. Our perfect love for God, our perfect love for others is the great commandment. I like what it says in Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself as a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. 
God is already at work within us to purify us. Right? The grace of God appeared. We just, we just have come through the Christmas season and we've talked about, even in that specific moment, how, how the grace of God appeared to us. And it appeared to us not only to bring salvation, but also training us, teaching us to renounce ungodliness, right? to live self-controlled. Right? He's already worked within us to purify us and to make us holy. But do our responses reflect that? Does our love towards God and does our love towards one another reflect that? As Paul listed the fruit of the Spirit, and now as we've walked through these fruit the last couple months, we've, we've come full circle. Right? We started with love, which is a quality that directs our thoughts and our actions towards God and towards others. And now we end with self-control, which directs our thoughts and actions inward toward ourselves for the good of God and others. The first eight qualities of the Spirit listed are very clearly empowered by God, by the grace of God. Self-control is no less empowered by God, but at the same time, it's our act of the will to stay in step with the Spirit, enabling us to bear those other fruit. In 2 Peter 1, 5-9, Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brother affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if all these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities, that he is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. As Christians, even if we can love God with a perfect love, meaning that we do everything with the intention to express our love to God and others, we are still in a progression of life. Right? We're still in a progression of becoming more like God. What looks like perfectly loving God today, because of where we're at in our walk, may not be perfectly loving God two years from now. Because hopefully, in that time frame, We've grown and we've come to know more about who God is and who God's called us to be. And out of that love, the evidence of fruit will continue to grow as we come to understand God and our place within his will. Right? Even if the passion, the power of our love for him stays the same, self-control is part of that progression. In Galatians 5.25, Paul gives us a challenge to keep in step with the Spirit. It made me think about when I was in, in high school marching band. Um, I was lucky to be a part of a drum line that was... Uh, we were really good. Uh, trying to be humble, but we were really good. <laughs> and a big part of that success was discipline. We always we went away to band camp every year for at least a week. Usually it was two weeks 
uh, one week at school and then one week at band camp, and you'd think that over those two weeks, you would learn the music for the show that you're going to be playing for that next year. But it wasn't uncommon for us to get home from band camp having barely touched the music. <laughs> we barely knew the music a lot of the times when we came home from band camp. We had to cram that in in the last couple of weeks before school. The majority of our time as a drumline was, was learning and practicing marching technique and playing warm-ups uh, meant to teach us how to keep time while we were marching boxes around the field. Just, just boxes. Not, not any of our cool moves that we did during the show, just marching in boxes. And it taught us to keep in step, and it taught us to keep in time to the lead snare drum while keeping our drums perfectly parallel with the sideline. <laughs> By the end of the camp, you could have put us on the 50-yard line and probably blindfolded us and told us to march to any given place on the field, and we could have done it just by feel because of the discipline that had been drilled into us. And when you're marching during a show, the section leader of the drum line, generally your center snare drum, he gets the tempo from the conductor, or in marching band you call him the drum major, but from the point that the band starts playing, generally the time is kept by the drum line, right? The conductor is still up there so that you have a reference point, but the band is listening to the drums play and listening to that center snare drum for their, for their mark. And this isn't a perfect comparison, but in some ways our lives are much like that, right? We get our tempo and we get our cue from God the Father, Christ the Son, through the word that he's given us. But when life starts, Right, once we've gotten that cue and we've actually started, once we get into the day-to-day, -day, we, we see what's happening around us. We have specific moments that we have to react to, specific people that come into our lives. When we're into the day-to-day, -day, we get the tempo and the marching orders from the Holy Spirit. We have to understand the Word. We have to have the discipline to know who God is take the time to understand what God's will for our life is, to know what his word says, so that when we're in the moment when the pressure is on, we can sense and hear the Holy Spirit talking to us so that we can continue to do his will. We have to learn to keep in step with the Spirit. It's important to know the word. It's to spend time in prayer, to take the time to worship, because if we don't, it's impossible to stay in step with the Spirit. Right, without, without a discipline, a marching band is not good. <laughs> even, even a band that ordinarily is great musically falls apart when they start marching if they don't know how to stay in time, if they can't keep the tempo. Right, we may know all that the Bible has to say to us intellectually, but if we don't know how to sense the Spirit's urgings, if we don't know how to lean into God's will, then we really can't stay in step. Right? It's not likely that in every moment that we're faced with a temptation or faced with a challenge that we're going to have the Bible open on our laps. We have to understand and have had discipline before that so when we get into those moments, we can be led by the Spirit.
that it's in finding the, that balance that we realize the abundant life that we've been talking about. So when it comes to self-control, how does it apply? Where do we start? And I have some questions that are more about reflection just to get us started. Uh, and one of the most difficult parts of self-control, I think, is realizing where our blind spots are. Right? What are those things that, that trigger us? What are the things that subconsciously become an issue uh, so that we know what to look out for? And I found these questions in a book that I was reading this week uh, by Christopher J.H. Wright called Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit. And I found them to be really helpful. So I wanted to share them with you this morning. They're also in your bulletin. What are the typical forms of lack of self-control that are evident in your culture? And what ways are Christians also tempted in the same way? And as Christians, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world, which means that we're often going to fall prey to the same temptations of the people around us. So what are those common pitfalls that we should be looking out for? What are the things that we should be aware of so that we, we don't succumb to that pressure? Second, where in your own life do you see the need for greater self-control? What specific steps will you take spiritually and in practice to cultivate this part of the fruit of the Spirit? Third, what are practical ways in which you could, by example, carry out what Paul tells us to do in Titus 2, 2 through 8? I'd encourage you this week to go home and read that. But to summarize it, it shows a pattern of older men and women modeling what it looks like to live a virtuous, self-controlled life, encouraging or mentoring someone younger, and it also challenges young men and women to live self-controlled themselves. So what would it look like to, to come alongside someone and, and mentor them? This is a lot of really what we were talking about in our uh, Discipleship Blueprint Discovery Hour class. And that's where I'd encourage you to start this week. Simple. Just give yourself a half hour, hour at some point, to really think on these questions. Because none of us is in the same spot in our relationship with Christ. Right? I, I can't pinpoint what everybody's weaknesses and temptations are. I'm not going to try to. <laughs> We've all come to know him at, at different times with different degrees. We all struggle with different things that are different. They might be similar, but they're different. We have different sins that challenge us. And we've had different challenges us challenges in life that have made us the people that we are. Right? Our experiences shape who we are. And that gives us a different perspective of who God is and what God's grace looks like. And that can be a really powerful thing for the body of Christ. Right? To have people that are all from different perspectives and different walks of life so take some time to evaluate where and how you need to work on self-control. Pray for guidance and assistance by the Spirit. And then I'd encourage you to find someone who's willing to hold you accountable on a regular basis, right? Who you can be authentic and honest with. When the church is able to extend grace and to build one another up in love through accountability, and grace-filled challenge, that can be a really beautiful thing. I mean, that can be a, that's, that's what begins to, to bring the church together when 
the grace of God becomes really powerful because it's not something that we're just reading about. It's something that we're extending to one another and experiencing in everyday life. So that would be my encouragement to you this week is to take some time to, to think about those questions, answer them for yourselves, and then maybe find somebody who you can share those answers with that's willing to hold you accountable. Let's pray. God, <clears throat> you are an amazing God. You have done so much for us for our good. You've given us so much grace, love, joy, and the list goes on. I pray that as we exit this series of uh, the fruit of the Spirit, that we would sense your presence in our lives in a way that gives us the strength to have self-control and that the fruit that we would bear would be a perfect reflection of you. Strengthen us as a power, as a people here at First Baptist to reflect your, your will and your grace in this community. I pray that you would continue to draw us together as a church and then as we become one, that the people around us would see and understand who you are through us, God. You're an amazing God. We live to serve you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.